0: Welcome everybody to Redemption Tempe's podcast. Our aim is to make disciples who live all of life all for Jesus, and the podcast seeks to aid us in that goal. And so we're in the middle of this series right now where we are diving into the book of Daniel and looking at various aspects of the culture, and today we have the opportunity to interview Mike Goheen about consumerism. Before we do that, Josh, why don't you give us an overview of the series and just remind everybody what we're doing?
1: Yeah, so the title for the series is Exiles, Faithful Presence in Our Cultural Moment. Uh, really going, uh, man, throughout history, well, looking in the book of Daniel and seeing how Daniel lives faithfully in the midst of an empire and a context that is opposed to uh, the God that he loves and worships and serves. And similarly, throughout history, each week, we're looking at some of these various um, idolatries or ideologies that show up both in the book of Daniel uh, and throughout history (laughs) and in our world today uh, and show up in unique, specific ways, though, for us today and going, how do we live faithfully amidst some of the specific pressures? Uh, and live faithfully in the context that we find ourselves here in in 21st century america
0: so one of the people that we are interviewing is mike goheen we've been interviewing a different person each week um and just to introduce mike uh, mike has uh written a book, uh, uh, several books that have actually shaped our congregation pretty profoundly, The Drama of Scripture, Living at the Crossroads, um, several books about mission, and um, is someone who has shaped the theological vision of many of the pastors through uh, his work with starting the Missional Training Center, also through um, uh, helping to provide the theological vision for uh, the Surge School. And several years ago, how many years ago, Mike, did you move down to Arizona? Six or seven. Six or seven years ago, um, he moved down to Arizona, and he and Marnie have lived here and have probably been uh, the most significant theological influence on many of the pastors at Redemption. And so one of the areas he's influenced us on is engaging and challenging and resisting cultural idols, including consumerism, which we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you a broader question, Mike. There are some people who would say that Thinking about the the cultural idols or the cultural movements or the isms of consumerism, nationalism, those sorts of things, isn't something that we should do because you really don't see the New Testament church challenging the cultural idols of their day. So what what would you say if someone said that to you?
2: Um, I would say that the reason they are seeing that is because they have a certain set of glasses on Hmm. when they read the Bible. Um, if I can put it this way, uh, let's pretend the Bible is written in green, blue, yellow, and red. And all those sections dealing with the communal, corporate cultural idolatry are written in red. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that we in North America have red glasses on. Mm -hmm. And so we put those red glasses on and everything written in red, we just miss. Well, the reality is that what we we have certain cultural prejudices and read things through our glasses, we're just going to miss things. Mm -hmm. And so when we have individualistic glasses on, we're going to read the Bible and we're going to see all of those things that fit our worldview. And we're going to miss those things that challenge it. In fact, the Bible is is loaded with mm. a challenge to cultural idolatry. I would even argue that the primary way that the Bible views sin, certainly the Old Testament, and I would even argue the New Testament, mm. is Cultural idolatry. Mm. For example, Romans 1 gives us analysis of sin and starts by talking about the Roman Empire and how they turn from the living God to serve idol- idols and how God gives them over to their cultural idolatry. And then the sin that is, that we normally speak of, individual, um, immorality, for example, is found in the last verses the product of that cultural idolatry. And so all the way through the Old Testament, the Jews viewed sin in terms of the pagan cultural idolatry. And so one of the primary ways of viewing sin is that way. And so you see this kind of language um, in the New Testament when you come to the word world, for Mm. example. Don't be conformed to this world, Romans 12, Paul says. Uh, um, What's Paul saying? Don't be conformed. To the culture as it's been shaped by idolatry, James four four says, "You're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world," and by that he means either you're going to you're going to live out of the word of God or you're going to be shaped by the story of the world, the culture that's been shaped by idolatry. But I think the more you understand Jesus's ministry, the more you see he was challenging the cultural idolatrous mores of his day. When he invited the marginalized to come and eat with him, he was using various kinds of meal etiquette of the culture and challenging the idolatry that it was, was at work. Uh, was he brought the kingdom of God? He was challenging the idolatry of the Jews, the idolatry of the Roman Empire. And then Paul's stuff is just full of a challenge to the, to Roman idolatry. He uses all kinds of, of Roman terminology to challenge the underlying idolatry of Rome. And so, once you have a, an understanding of the way the Bible is constantly challenged, the empires of the world, the book of Daniel is a great example, challenging the empire of Babylon and Babylon shows up in first Peter to remind them you're living in, as exiles in Babylon. <laughs> and so the empires of the world uh, that are shaped by um, commitment to idolatry, it's throughout the Bible and, and constantly Paul, Paul, well, Any of the New Testament writers couldn't have thought of an individual apart from living in a culture shaped by a certain story, certain idolatry, and everywhere is a challenge to that idolatry.
1: Mm, That's great. Well, uh, I've heard it said, and I would tend to agree that consumerism is the number one religion in America today. I agree. Uh, But we don't tend to think of it as a religion. And for that matter, the word consumerism itself, it can be kind of a nebulous, ambiguous, big word for a lot of folks. And so I'm wondering if we could maybe talk a little about how would you define consumerism and what would Mm. you say, you know, some of its history in North America? Have you seen it? How have we kind of gotten to where we are today. So sort of consumerism. What is it and how did we get here?
2: I always like to say um, when you take an ism word, the first word is the good part of creation and the ism tells you it's become an idol. So consumption is a good thing. God intended us to delight in creation. He intended us to delight delight in the goods of creation, if you want to use that language, and the experiences of creation. I mean, we live in a good world and we know we live in a good world and we have many good experiences. There's many ways of delighting in it. And so um, idolatry is first when we take something out of its place in creation. So we were intended to delight in God's world, but we take that and we make it the goal of our lives. But again, keeping in mind that We never simply have our own personal idols. We always form our idols together as a community. So it's when we begin to form, uh, we, we take one goal of life and make it the goal of human life and we start to pursue that goal. And we answer, there's a there's a Westminster catechism question that you may or may not know. What is the chief end of man? It's built on Calvin's catechism question. What's the chief end of man? And the Westminster Confession answers, to glorify God and know him forever. That's the goal of human life. Well, how does a culture answer that question? What is the chief end of human life? And the chief end of human life, according to the consumer worldview, is to enjoy as many goods and experiences as you can before you die. And it's not like uh, so what this is, is kind of a goal in life. We begin to structure our society around that goal so that every part of society is structured towards that end. And so we've got to have individual freedom so we can pursue what we find to be the best goods or the best experiences that we delight in our lives. So I think that a consumer society is one that begins to structure the whole of its social, economic, political, educational life around the goal of consumption of goods and experiences. How did we get there? Well, how long a story do you need here? (laughs) This is a long story, but I'll tell it quickly. I think it goes way back, but I'm going to begin in the 18th century in the 18th century, Europe was a pretty poor nation. Uh, it was in the backwaters in some ways. Uh, it was st- it was starting to come out of the backwaters, but there's still a lot of poverty in Europe. And um, Adam Smith basically said, you know, the chief end of our European culture should be to have far more goods and we should use technology and a, and, a, and capital and a free market to be able to uh, grow in the number of goods. And he was an ethicist and he had a noble The more goods we could produce through science and technology, the more we would, uh, the happier we would be. Well, Adam Smith was an Enlightenment figure. And so, how are we going to solve the issue of poverty? Well, he adopted this story, the Enlightenment, that was beginning to dominate the day, and that is science. And technology, the efficient organization of society, that would get us there. And so he believed that if we could organize economic life, uh, we could begin to produce more and more goods. Well, I mean that's pretty quick. But in the 19th century, in the Industrial Revolution, this vision is realized through science and technology. We begin through the, in the Industrial Revolution to produce more and more goods. And by the time we reach the early 20th century, what we have done is we have actually we're actually producing. Um, more goods than we can consume. And so we got a problem. People are not buying them. There's so many goods. There's so much coming off the assembly lines that we can't possibly consume at all. And so there's a struggle for this first half of the 20th century. What are we going to do? Are we going to cut back production? Are we going to build up consumption? And the goal in the first 20th century is build up consumption. And so that's, where we start to see marketing and advertising and ways of trying to change people to, so that the chief end is to consume. And so what we see in the 21st 20th century is this growth of a society that is making consumption its chief end and science and technology is producing more and more goods. But I think what we've seen in the latter part of the 20th century is not simply a consumption of goods. But it's now a consumption of experiences. So it's not just having three cars and a three-car garage and a big enough house to own that. It's now being able to travel the world. It's being able to uh, being able to enjoy a vacation here, a vacation there. In other words, it becomes more about the experience we have, and we can document them with Facebook. So it becomes a matter of experience, uh, consumption of experiences. So consumerism, building that culture around the chief end of humanity as enjoying a a certain freedom and leisure to delight in the goods of creation and to delight in the experiences of creation.
0: Yeah. And so where does it go wrong? Because I think a lot of people would say globalization, a global market economy has made the world a better place. It has saved the world. It has delivered people out of poverty. It has given us the goods and services that we truly want to enjoy. And uh, what's wrong with that? Well there's a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. The
2: global economy has done good. Um idolatry always does both. Yeah. Idolatry because it takes hold of something good in creation can give it gives a lot, mm-hmm. but it also can takes away a lot. So the problem is that in fact the global economy is delivering for some people. But not for everybody. It's not fulfilling the enlightenment dream where everybody would be able to enjoy all of these wonderful goods. All, everybody would enjoy these experiences. There's a built in inequity and a built in injustice in the system itself. So it's, there's no such thing as this level free market mm. where all of us have a, have equal access to it. It's very much an unlevel playing field. And so there is people who've been brought into this from other parts of the world, but there also been it's it's uh led to a lot of economic injustice it's led to a plundering of god the resources i mean if everybody according to the world bank if everybody lived at the level that Americans live at in the world the world's resources would last 10 years mm. so we do not have the resources to sustain this kind of lifestyle for every for the seven billion people of the world it just doesn't work so there's an ecological injustice there, there there's the the uh, an economic injustice where many are marginalized but consumerism carries a whole culture this is not just about consumption it's a whole culture and this culture is a western culture that is that is a missionary religion that is being spread around the world and so it's also having an impact on local cultures so there's i think there's some very serious problems um along with the fact that yeah the global market has done some good and
0: who can question that Mm. but but what if someone would say how is consumerism a religion. I know Islam, I know Buddhism, I know Hinduism, but you know, consumerism it's just efficiently making stuff and enjoying stuff. How is that a religious thing?
2: I would say religion we're talking about what is the goal of human life? Mm. What is the chief end of humanity? And a, reli- a religious commitments are those things that we devote our lives to. Mm -hmm. Those things that we devote our waking hours to, what what gets us up in the morning, what we believe will bring us fulfillment, what we believe brings us uh, satisfaction. And so consumerism has become a religion because uh, we we seek it first. Mm. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, we seek this first. And then also begins to shape all of our culture and our society. And what happens is politics, education, and so forth, all become bound up in this goal of human life and so it's a communal corporate kind of thing religion is always communal it's mm. never simply individual so it begins to it begins to help us seek that primary goal mm. of living out um, a life that seeks first consumerism
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talk about kind of the global nature, it makes me think of, uh, just Babylon in the book of Revelation, kind of the end mm. of scripture. It's like it's described primarily as almost this economic powerhouse and entity. Oh, yes. Uh, more, the, more than a political one. So not, the kings and nations participate in it, but Absolutely. it feels like the description is more economic. And it makes me think of, I remember becoming a Christian in college and hearing certain Christians talk about this fear of like a one world government or something, you know, and it seems like, well, I don't know that that's the biggest threat or fear as much as the, the reality of this international economic system that has done a lot of good and yet has left a lot of people, has not only left a lot of people out, but has actually... Hurt a lot of communities yes. and creation as a whole. Uh, I'm curious. I love how you said it's both goods and experiences, because uh, I think we d- often tend to think of it uh, as mostly just goods, like consumerism is buying more products, buying more products. Uh, but it does seem like we, when you, when you put it that way, it seems you could you could be a minimalist, you know, in terms of the stuff yeah. you own, and yet still be a consumerist right. in terms through the the pursuit of experiences. Which for me and my family, as well as many I know, it seems like that's almost becoming the more. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the Instagram culture and was just reading this last week uh, about uh, these internet cafes that are designed specifically to be not just the stuff you buy, but like an an Instagram spot where you go to kind of have the experience of having your photo taken in that environment. And so that's the whole concept of experiences. And it seems like all of this plays on desire. Right? Like Mm -hmm. consumerism plays on desire, Mm -hmm. human desire, the sense of dissatisfaction. I need that good. I need that experience in order to fill myself to feel full and yet often it seems like no matter how much we get it leaves us wanting more and more so I'm curious if you could talk about maybe like a Christian vision of uh, desire how does Jesus and the gospel speak into the nature of our desires how does consumerism kind of play on our desires in unhealthy ways and what's kind of gospel vision for the restoration desire that actually
2: desire is a good thing desire is a good thing it's the way god has made us and we desire certain things because of the way god has made us and so we desire to enjoy his creation we desire things that uh, these kind of experiences so desire is not the problem the problem is when that desire starts to get taken up in a and becomes ultimate and so it starts to govern our lives it becomes it becomes the goal of our lives and so I, I, we often think, for example, of the word lust, just to, to, to move outside of consumerism for more. The desire for sex. Well, that is a good thing. That's the way God has made humanity. And if we channel that desire in the way God intended, that's where there's joy and fulfillment. But when we cha- when our desires then become either all-consuming or directed wrongly, that's when desire becomes, is led astray and becomes problem problematic. So desire is not a bad thing. Desire is the way God has made us. It's when the desire becomes misdirected towards something that it should not be directed towards or becomes all-consuming and ultimate. And so there are certain desires that lead to a consumer lifestyle. And I think I would say at the heart of it, it's a desire to enjoy God's good creation. And God God made us to, to enjoy his creation. He made us as physical creatures, as emotional creatures, as creatures that could live in and delight in his creation. But when that becomes the goal of our lives, when that becomes misdirected, when we start to focus on that and make that the goal, that's when desire it becomes problematic.
0: So, Mike, we, we know that... Identifying consumerism as an idol is important, but that's not the only thing that you do. When you identify it, it doesn't mean you've resisted it. What are some of the practices historically as believers that that we can engage in that would help us to resist the idolatry of consumerism?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I I think that first thing is not asceticism. Mm -hmm. The first thing is not to say, let's stop enjoying his creation. Mm -hmm. Or the first thing is not, woe is me. God has blessed me. Mm. It's not to start to deny the goodness of creation. And deny what's right about consumerism. That's that. That's not the starting point. So the question is, how can we sort of... I don't know how to use this. I, I don't know how to put it. Like the language you often use is redeem consumerism. And I don't want to say it like that. I want to say, how is it that we can redeem the desire to delight in God's good creation and have it play its rightful place and role in our lives? That's mm-hmm. the question. How can we have is what one uh, Jewish rabbi calls a consecrated consumption. Mm-hmm. How can we have that kind of consecrated consumption where we learn to live and delight in his creation with thanksgiving, but at the same time live with generosity, live with simplicity, live with thankfulness, live with a desire to, to serve others with what we've been given? And I think the first thing that has to be said is nobody can resist this as individuals or as families. Mm. I think the current is way too powerful. If we think we're going to resist it by our own prayer life, our own Bible reading life, if we think as families we can set up practices, I think, and I think we should as families and as individuals, mm-hmm. if we think we can resist it on our own, I think we're sadly mistaken. I think the powers of consumerism are much too strong and they will sweep us into its currents. so we haven't got a chance. And I think the first thing we need to realize is community. But here's the problem. We've got such terrible view of the church as a bunch of individuals who share a certain religious experience. Mm. And we don't realize that we are the new humanity and we're called to encourage and help one another live out the gospel in the context of an idolatrous culture. We don't have that sense built into us. So we come on Sunday and it's about us getting fed for the sermon or us getting having another good consumer experience in the worship. And we forget that we, we need a much deeper discipleship. And so I think that somehow churches have to figure out ways uh, to do a discipleship that goes beyond Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, whenever you worship, that, help, that where people are together wrestling with what does it mean in our vocation? What does it mean in our family? What does it mean in the spending of our money? What does it mean in the use of our technology? What does it mean to, to be a faithful people amidst this consumer society? And I don't think I would want to legislate these are the practices but i'd want to say that we need some we need ways in which we can discuss this discuss our culture discuss its power in our lives discuss how to live this out and then of course pray together. Mm -hmm. And I think that prayer is going to be a a critical component in all of this. And I think that um, especially prayer, I I would argue, especially needed is Mm -hmm. prayers of thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. learning how to really praise God and thank God for all we've been given. Because it's hard to live with a consumer lifestyle if you thank the Lord for everything he's given you. Because soon it starts to make you realize, well, not everybody can thank the Lord for all this stuff. There's a whole lot of a pain in the world. And that gratitude would lead, will lead to groaning, mm. will lead to identifying with the suffering and the pain of our world and a desire to be ger- generous and merciful and compassionate and just and so on. And so I think a prayer and and a kind of prayer life that is deeply thankful, but a kind of prayer life that all, also acknowledges the tremendous powers at work in the culture. Mm. So what kind of practices? Prayer, community and fellowship. A community and fellowship that is that is starting to ask questions about our culture and delve down into it, find ways of examining the idolatries at the root of our culture. And I suppose another one would be celebration,
0: mm-hmm. learning
2: how to celebrate, right? And celebrate well. I, I, I got to admit a real failure here mm. um, in my own family life, and uh, maybe this story will help some people. But when my, my oldest daughter now is about 38. And when she was about, when she was in her mid-teens, so we're talking about 20 some years ago, I was starting to realize the power of a consumer culture. We're studying Luke together. And as we studied Luke together, I was realizing, because Luke has a lot of economic stuff in it, and uh, you can't read far into Luke without realizing his concern for the poor. And I was re- studying consumers and reading Luke as what we were doing as a family, and I was becoming absolutely overwhelmed with guilt. Mm-hmm. I am a white person who's enjoying and delighting all these good things in creation. Not everybody can enjoy it. Woe is me because I'm so blessed. And I started just walking around with this deep sense of guilt. And I was communicating that to my kids. Mm. And they are not, That they, they, you know, instead of community, communicating a sense of, of joy and delight in God's blessing, but then let's be generous. I was committing guilt for what we had. And this really came, this really came home to me when one time my oldest daughter, she's probably 13, 14, 15 years old. She's wearing this old parka with holes in it. Mm-hmm. And her grandma said to her, you know, Dear, you need, you need a nice coat for as a little girl. You need a nice coat. And she says, Oh, grandma, I can't have a nice coat. There's too many people who are starving in the world and don't have the basic necessities. I, I could never have another coat. And I realized, what the heck am I doing? I'm teaching her to live out of guilt. And, 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 and I realized at that point that she had to learn. She had to learn to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And she had to learn to celebrate the goodness of God and allow that celebration and that thanksgiving to lead to generosity. Mm-hmm. So there had to be this deep sense of thankfulness and gratitude and joy out of which generosity and justice and mercy came rather than being driven by guilt. And what I can say wonderfully, she now is married and they're, the two of them are working in the inner city. As pastors, and they're working in the inner city with a lot of poor and a lot of needy and a lot of broken people. I mean, this is what their church is, but they have, are always looking for ways to celebrate. Mm-hmm. They're always looking for ways to bring in the poor and celebrate. Mm-hmm. And they're always looking for ways within their home, ways within their church to celebrate. And the celebration is full of joy. And we've been part of some of these. Mm-hmm. It's full of a lot of joy. And so the, idea, so the concern is let's bring the poor into our celebration and let's celebrate and out of that celebration, uh, allow generosity and mercy and justice and compassion. And let it flow from that. So figuring out ways that we can truly celebrate over against, I think, the false ways of celebration that take place now, looking for fresh ways of doing it that where Christians can say, I want to see where joy is. Celebration doesn't have to be the kind of um, orgy of consumption of experiences, but there can be a kind of celebration out of which justice and mercy flow.
1: Mm. Celebration, that's so powerful. And one thing you said that struck me was gratitude as well as a practice. Uh, I found my own daughter. She's nine now, but when she was younger, you know, we would pray and try and pray and we would pray. Um, A lot of the prayers just tended to be like... uh, God, I want this, or God, I want that, or, you know, and, and we started moving to the kind of acts, prayer, or like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and what we found is like, when we began with, like, adoring God for who he was, acknowledging our own sin, and then giving thanks, and she found, oh, I'm so thankful for this experience I just had, or this thing, whatever, and by the time we got to supplication of wanting more, like, what do you want more of, I found my five-year-old, six-year-old daughter was, like, I think I'm good, <laughs> which was yeah, yeah. kind of, wow, it seems like that practice of gratitude. Mm. There are things that we need, like, you know, yeah, your granddaughter needing a new coat. And then there's also- Not my granddaughter,
2: my daughter. Or, or your daughter, your daughter, <laughs> your daughter. Yeah, your daughter needing a coat. And yeah. yeah. onto on that is a, a book written by Mary Letty called Radical Gratitude. And one of the things she believes is that the only way to encounter consumer culture is through gratitude. Mm. Mm. I can give an example. Recently, I went out- and I was going to run. And I felt this thanksgiving for a healthy body at my age. A lot of people can't run. And I was thankful for that healthy body. Mm -hmm. And immediately my mind was turned to a neighbor who's in his thirties and dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. And I felt on the one hand, that deep gratitude for what God had done, given Mm -hmm. me. But it immediately led me to groan for others who didn't have what I had. When we thank God for good marriages, we groan when people don't have good marriages. When we thank God for the gifts that he's given us and good food, we groan for people who don't have good food. And I think Thanksgiving can do that. And we did something in our own family. We would spend one day every week in our family worship where we would have 20 minutes only for Thanksgiving. And the the rule was... You can say, thank you, Lord, for, and then you name it. And you could go on and say, because, and explain why you wanted to thank the Lord, but no requests. One line prayers, thank you, Lord, for. Now, if you've ever tried to do 20 minutes of thank you, Lord, for, cause that takes you, what, about 10 seconds? It takes a lot of thank you, Lords, for to fill 20 minutes. Yeah. And the first times we started doing it, there was large spaces of emptiness. We ran out of things to thank the Lord for quickly. And so, we'd be thinking more. And what would ha- what began to happen in our family life is I would say by the time our kids were growing in their mid-late teenage years, we could fill 20 minutes easily and keep going. But here is what, what ended up happening is we started realizing we're all different. You know, my son could see beauty and he could smell good things mm-hmm. and he could hear good things. In other words, he had an aesthetic sensitivity. He thanked the Lord for those things. And all of a sudden, I who am blind to these things, deaf to these things, I cannot see that. All of a sudden I started realizing, boy, my life would be pretty miserable without color, sound, and smell. And I started realizing that I need to thank the Lord for those gifts, the sensory gifts I had. And I could give you many other examples. But the point is you start to realize how we enjoy God's creation without thanking Him. But then we become aware that there are people that just can't enjoy the creation because of bodily problems because because of sickness or pain or whatever and so that thankfulness for those many many things makes our our gratitude as it gets broader enables our compassion to grow broader as well
1: maybe a a final question or two you know marketing it seems to work marketing seems to work by association in a lot of ways you know like that, sometimes what we want is more than just the product itself so i think of a you know axe body spray you know if you kind of spray this in your armpits the women will all just come flocking you know for guys or or, uh, if you have a a, you know an apple laptop and you're out at the cafe or there's a certain status kind of associated with that or if you go to hawaii on vacation and get the photos and put it out online um there's a certain sense of kind of You've made it, you know, that, that yeah. kind of feeling. And, and so it seems sometimes we want more than just the thing. We want some of the stuff that gets embedded in and associated with the thing. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about how that maybe creates a stratification in our society, uh, ways of, is there an aspect of that that becomes unjust in a sense where uh, status and making it things like that become associated with and embedded in kind of the stuff that we own? it seems to feed kind of the spiral and rat race of consumerism that can suck us in. I'm curious if you have thoughts, are there ways that that creates uh, or feeds into inequity in our society and uh, injustice on kind of the, the broader social level?
2: Yeah. First of all, there's no question that marketing is not what it was meant to be in the beginning, where, where marketing informs you about why this product is good. Now marketing gets associated with a whole lifestyle. If you live like, uh, you know, if you want, if you want to have sex appeal, if you want to have true joy, if you want to have this incredible experience and so forth, then buy this product. And at first, the thing I think we need to say is that's a lie. And it's, and it it is quite in the theological sense, a damned lie, Mm. because it's a lie that comes right, straight from the pit of hell. And one of the things we did, we had TV for a little while. In our home, and then we got rid of it uh, for the growing up of our kids because we thought uh, the downside the downside was too strong. So, but when we had it for a little while, um, and my kids were small, watching some of the kids' programs, they had these commercials, and the commercials were targeted at kids. And incidentally, there's a lot of books out there um, about the way companies target kids because they think if they can get loyalty by age five, they've got your kid for life. And so, a lot of, of uh, marketing is directed towards kids. And there's there's a literature you can find out there on that. And so I was naively, I mean, aware of this. And I knew they were being targeted to have these more toys and so on. And so what I said to my kids is, if you want to watch these programs, what you have to say at the end of every commercial is, who do you think you're kidding? who do you think you're kidding? And what I want to I was trying to develop in there a skepticism. You're trying to kid me that I need this to have a happy life. And I want you to say, who do you think you're kidding? And they did it. Um, and they, they, I think it developed a healthy skepticism. So I think what we have to do, do we have to develop that healthy skepticism towards marketing. But yeah, what does that do to us as people? Well, it, it makes us say, if we can't afford those things, my life my life's bad. Hmm. I need those kind of things. And it makes you feel bad about yourself. I, I couldn't have that vacation. I couldn't have that. I can't have that good. And I think that there's a way of one person exalting themselves over the other. And I'm sure it leads to all kinds of injustices. I haven't thought about how that works, but I'm sure that marketing leads to certain ways, you know, because I've got these things, then there's a sense of superiority I have towards others who do not have those things. Because I've had these experiences, I'm on a higher level than you. Um, And so I'm sure that it leads to a sense of stratification and a lot of people saying, well, I don't have these things. And so I must be on this lower class. I'm sure it just feeds that kind of hierarchy. Although I haven't thought sociologically about how how
0: exactly that works. So, so, you know, you commented on what you did with your kids right. and how you were forming them and I think that that's one of the biggest things that we should be considering now absolutely is um that th- with every commercial it's like inviting a new evangelist for a different religion into your home to make a pitch <laughs> to your children for their their religion and um you know I'll tell you a story about how having these conversations with you and then spending some time in Vancouver affected our family hmm. i don't know if you remember this but Two years ago, when we were, my wife and I, we came out to Vancouver. We spent time, uh, in your home with, uh, your daughter and son-in-law, uh, Dave and Brittany. And that was one of the most life-giving weekends I can remember. Mm. It was so refreshing. And that time, as well as kind of how you've talked about Shaping your kids in that way is what formed how we do our Sabbath days. Mm. We kind of dreamed up what our Sabbath would look like on that trip. And so one of the ways we push against the idol of consumerism is through these Sabbath days that we have every Saturday where, um, sometimes we, we, we drift. We don't, they're not what they could be, but generally what we'll do is we'll try to hide our our phones and our computers and put them in a box somewhere. And we wake up immediately in the morning and we start singing this song, celebrating that it's our Sabbath day. And I'm not going to sing the song for you, but the (laughs) four main parts of the song are, uh, we give, we rest, we pray, and we play. And those are the four pillars of the Mm. day. And so, uh, we, we rest, we take naps, we do things that, that are, uh, Restorative. We play and enjoy the goodness of creation. We have extended times of giving thanks. We have a bunch of, we do this with some of our neighbors who are also part of the church. Um, we come over, they come over, we have a meal together. We all write down what we're grateful for on this table that I built. Uh, The other thing that we try to do is instead of, of buying things and bringing them into the home, we try to make this a day of creating and making. Um so one of the things that can be different than consumer uh, consumerism is um creating and, and uh, actually taking the time because when you're making something it slows you down to the degree that you can appreciate what it is mm. um, the gift of wood and what it does if you can you can see the and, and be attentive to the creational goodness if you are attending to that wood and forming it into something mm. and so we give um, we make things uh, we we spend some time praying and a lot of time giving thanks but probably the funnest thing that we do that which I think is really formal that my daughter loves is there's a time in the day when she can walk through the house and she can choose anything she wants to take and to to put it into a bag and then to, with the purpose of giving it to our neighbors, mm-hmm. including so, your computer, including my computer. I, I'll, Here's admit, a I'll admit, washer <laughs> yeah. I'll admit, I'll admit.
2: sometimes your... I hide some
0: things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but you know. So we'll have this bag full of like books or some brownies that we made or some basil from the garden. And we'll just go down the street, knock on the door. Uh, we'll explain what we're doing. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and they look at us with a funny oh. face, but my daughter, she's so cute, she wins them over <laughs> and she'll give them the basil or the remote control or whatever. <laughs> and they'll ask, they'll often ask, like, why are you doing what you're doing? And yeah. we'll just tell them, Jesus said that it is better to give than to receive. And mm. so we are experiencing that right now. <laughs> and, uh, what she started doing, I didn't even, I didn't teach her this. She she now like lifts up her hand and pronounces a blessing over each person <laughs> as we we leave their house. But what it's done is it's created in her this anticipation, this desire for giving and celebrating the small, overlooked things that I notice is the same desire I had as a kid, but was almost always associated with the ice cream truck or buying something or watching a new show. Mm. And and I'm praying that over time, this sort of repetition of mm. entering into Christ's joy by giving and giving thanks and these sorts of things forms her in that way. So thank you, Mike, wow. for the influencing me in that way, and thank you for influencing our broader community through teaching that. MTC and uh, Surge and uh, thanks for taking the time With this podcast here
1: Yeah, Thankfully as this podcast goes to air We're about to enter into uh, The Christmas season when fortunately our culture Takes a break from consumerism and we have a Nice reprieve (laughs) right <laughs> i'm just joking it is interesting to me that like so much of the way we celebrate the birth of christ as a culture has become so wrapped up with the uh, credit card debt and endless shopping to-do lists and all that but it's interesting those pieces that you mentioned well oh, even some of the things today themes like how do we approach the season with themes like celebration and gratitude and even generosity and some of the practices that you guys uh resting and being together and celebrating and making things versus just consuming things and all that it feels like a powerful word to kind of enter into the Christmas season with. It's just maybe a reframing of some ways to approach the season.
0: Yeah. How
2: we live lives of giving over this Christmas season. And I'm told that our global economy would fall apart if Americans stop overspending at Christmas. That's how much the 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 whole global economy for the year is dependent on Americans spending money at Christmas, which shows that uh, how powerful Christmas is in our consumer culture. Mm -hmm. Much bigger than we I think we thought have
0: thought. A religious holiday for consumer religion.
2: Very powerful religious holiday.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Josh. It was good talking about this with you guys, and uh, we continue to pray for our congregation that we would live as a contrast community and dive deep into the Word. Yes.